This episode is brought to you by the American Urological Association. Good evening, and welcome to the AUA's HARP Inhibitor, Management of Adverse Events. We strive to offer outstanding educational courses and greatly appreciate your evaluations and general feedback so that we can continuously improve our programs. The AUA is accredited by the ACCME and designates this live activity for a maximum of 1.0 AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Evaluations are very important to us. Course evaluations and CME credit will be administered electronically on AUA University immediately following this course. As we at the AUA continue to develop virtual education that meets your needs, we especially welcome your feedback regarding both the content and the format following this program. This educational activity is supported by an independent educational grant from Pfizer, Inc. All persons in a position to control the content of an AUA educational activity are required to disclose all financial relationships with any commercial interest. Please visit the AUA University to view faculty, education council, and COI review workgroup disclosures. You are prohibited from using or uploading content you access through this activity into external applications, bots, software, or websites, including those artificial intelligence technologies and infrastructure, including deep learning, machine learning, and large language models, and generative AI. Coding advice given during presentations are the opinions of the presenters and may not have been vetted through the AUA for accuracy. Please verify accuracy prior to reporting on medical claims. And finally, I'd like to introduce and extend a special thank you to our course director and moderator, Dr. Ashley Ross, for his time, talent, and expertise in developing this program. Dr. Ross is an associate professor of urology at the Northwestern Feinberg School of Medicine, where he additionally serves as the clinical director of the Polsky Urological Institute. As an expert in prostate cancer, Dr. Ross focuses on the development, testing, and implementation of novel diagnostics and therapeutics with the goal of reducing the suffering from prostate cancer. I will now turn the activity over to Dr. Ross. Thank you so much and welcome everybody. You know, based on documented needs um, from the AOA Advanced Prostate Cancer Global Needs Assessment, um, where they identified educational gaps and barriers to cancer care, the AOA has developed this three-part educational series to update urologists and other advanced providers on PARP inhibitor treatments. The focus of this third and final panel discussion will be on um, thinking about the latest developments in PARP inhibitors, but really um, zeroing in on some of the managements of adverse events and the adverse events that can happen associated to these drugs. The learning objectives are then going to be to A, review the selection of patients who might best benefit from PARP inhibitor treatment, B, um, to talk about how we screen for and recognize PARP inhibitor-related adverse events, and then C, to understand the management of PARP inhibitor-related adverse events. And I can tell you in preparation to this panel discussion, I learned quite a bit, um, and I think that we're going to learn quite a bit tonight. And I, what I gathered came a lot from the experts that we have on the panel. And so I want to welcome you to this series and also welcome some of our subject matter experts. I'm delighted to be joined by two international prostate cancer experts. The first is Dr. Alicia Morgans. She's a genital urinary medical oncologist and the medical director of the survivorship program at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston. She's an expert clinical trialist. She's been funded by the Prostate Cancer Foundation and the Department of Defense. And she serves as a member of the Advanced and Localized Prostate Cancer Treatment Guidelines of the AUA. Welcome, Dr. Morgans. Thank you so much, Dr. Ross. Uh, I also want to welcome uh, Dr. David Morris. He's a urologist, and he's the president of Urology Associates in Nashville, Tennessee. He's also an expert clinical trialist, and he coordinates the Advanced Therape Therapeutic Center for Prostate Cancer um, in Nashville. Welcome, Dr. Morris. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. So we're going to spend about 40 minutes with a, with a discussion um, before we dive into like zeroing in on the adverse uh, 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 events that can happen with PARP inhibitors and how we manage them. I just want to recap for the audience 
the, the first couple sessions we had on PARP inhibitors. And please, for the audience, these sessions are also available at AUA University for you to look at. But to recap, based on recent positive clinical trials, PARP inhibitors have now been approved for the treatment of selective men with metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer. In the first-line setting for metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer and beyond, if previously treated with abiraterone or enzalutamide, men with one of 14 mutations in homologous recombination repair machinery are eligible for a LAPRIB, which is a PARP inhibitor, as monotherapy. Again, in the first line or subsequent lines of therapy with metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer, men with one of 12 mutations in homologous recombination re repair machinery are eligible for telazoprib, which is another PARP inhibitor, combined with enzalutamide, regardless of their previous exposure to antigen receptor signaling inhibitors. Men with pathogenic mutations or alterations in um, BRCA1 or BRCA2 are eligible for first-line regimens, including olaparib and abiraterone, and niraparib and abiraterone, and again, regardless of previous antigen receptor signaling uptake inhibitors, or for rucaparib monotherapy if they've been treated previously with antigen receptor signaling inhibitors and chemotherapy. So basically, in the metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer setting, there are options to use PARP inhibitors in selected men if they have homologous recombination repair deficiencies, and particularly with deficiencies in BRCA1 or BRCA2. And the largest oncological benefits have been seen in people with BRCA1 or 2 alterations, including loss. In order to determine who is going to be then eligible, we have to be able to screen them genetically. So the AUA recommends that all men with metastatic prostate cancer be offered germline genetic testing. And because of this approval in the metastatic cancer-resistant prostate cancer setting, those men should have somatic ge genetic testing of their tumor itself, and if they haven't already undergone it, germline genetic testing. But now with that recap, let's jump into this session that's really focusing on you know, some of the treatment emergent adverse events. And I'll start with Dr. Morgans. So, PARP inhibitors, as I mentioned, were associated with oncological benefits, including overall survival benefits, but they, they do have some treatment emergent adverse events. You know, as a class, what toxicities have been related to PARP inhibitors? So thank you so much for bringing this up because I think this is, this is something that's so important, whether we're treating in urologic uh, you know, uh, offices or medical oncology offices, these drugs can cause cytopenias. They certainly cause bone marrow suppression. And um, it is very clear that whether we're using these drugs in um, isolation as a single agent, like olaparib or rucaparib, as you said, or whether we're using them in combination with an ARSI, we have to watch for anemia, thrombocytopenia. These are really absolutely things that can happen. We also see some level of leukopenia as well, um, but usually not something that is going to be prohibitive or something that we're really gonna to need to counsel patients about being neutropenic, at least in my experience. Um, as I have seen, especially with the combinations, um, we really do need to be able to counsel patients that they may need transfusions, particularly uh, red blood cells, but sometimes they may need either a drug hold or a transfusion for uh, thrombocytopenia or platelets. So these are things that are not uncommon. And as I said, really more common when we're using the combinations. I think as we think about this, the combinations might be more effective in terms of cancer control and disease control efficacy. So it is usually, at least from the clinician's perspective, going to be worth that bang for the buck. But we do need to talk to patients about whether this is something that they want to do, because it is still a question whether we use sequencing or we use combinations preferentially in any given patient's situation. Great. And, you know, Dr. Morris, you know, as we're, you know, either in sequencing or in combination therapy, in regards to like monitoring for these treatment aversion adverse events, particularly the, you know, the, you know, hematological events that, that Dr. Morgans was talking about, What's your protocol when you start someone on, you know, a single agent or some combination of agents in your clinic? Um, so I think the great point, um, 
this is atypical for what urologists historically have dealt with. So it does take a little bit of shift in focus. Um, and so adapting what the oncologists have used PARP inhibitors in other disease states for years, and we're stealing from them and Gynox to basically come up with the best practice. And so I think most of us have baseline labs, including things like CBC, PSA, which we're monitoring for disease progression and testosterone uh, to ensure that they're still in a castrate state. And on top of that, basically, then we're moving into kind of sequential monitoring where it used to be every three months, every six months, whatever the lab setup was in your clinic. This is something that when you started, you need to have a lab that's checking every month. Um, this is not something where you set it and forget it and come back three months later. So most of us uh, that are using these in clinical practice now, like the protocols from the trials that many of us were part of, you check before you start therapy. You're, you're checking very quickly on therapy within a month. And if somebody's already borderline to begin with and, and already has kind of a mild anemia to start, many of us are checking them in between that first month, uh, a couple of weeks on therapy to make sure that things are still safe. Excellent. And, you know, Dr. Morgan, do you, do you do the same thing? I mean, I think the key for our listeners is, you know, you have to, within the first month for sure, you need a set of labs to see if something's developing. In fact, anemia with PARP inhibitors tends to develop earlier than later in the course. You know, what do you do? Do you do um, one month, one week, two weeks, as David said, modulate by the patient's starting point? How do you go about it? So I, I really check monthly um, and I, I would be sure to, you know, follow follow the package inserts if you feel like this is not sufficient, but I check monthly and it's regardless of the, the single agent or the combination. I just try to keep it pretty consistent. And I do counsel patients upfront. You may have a low um, hemoglobin. You may need a transfusion. I doubt that will be necessary. It is not common, but it can happen. It is not atypical. So I try to sort of warn them on the front end that this may be an, an issue, but you know, I have a I have an infusion center with my practice, so it's a little bit easier. And I think that should be acknowledged that you know urologists don't have transfusion centers like necessarily built into their practices. Many lug pus do, um, but this is something that they will need to think through and and think about how do I best support these patients because they don't want to send them to the at least I would think they don't want to send them to the emergency department. So how do I you know support this patient? and make sure that I can continue the treatment and continue sort of trust with the patient without sending them somewhere where they need to sort of go outside of my practice to get that supportive care. So it's, it's a great point, and we may touch on it later more, but, you know, Dr. Morris, like Dr. Morgan said, it's, it's, not, uh, it's not like common per se, but also not rare. I mean, the transfusion rates can be between like 10% and up to like 45%. So depending on the regimen you use and where the patient's starting out. So, you know, in your case, Dr. Morris, you know, we'll get to this later too, but what do you do when someone needs a transfusion? Have you partnered with a infusion center, with a blood bank, or how do you go about it? Um, so I, I think the first thing was getting over the stigma and fear that giving blood was like this mythical thing that urologists are incapable of. Many of us are surgeons. Many of us have given blood in the hospital or in the OR without thinking anything of it. So that stigma of this is a failure on our part. If the patient needs blood, we just need to get past that and move on to this is support of a therapy that is helping in other ways. So that's number one, just mentally grasping that. And then it's, it's not very challenging. Actually, a lot of oncologists, even in our community, use the local hospital and their preoperative or same day setups to do blood transfusions. Um, and so that's where I would start first is with your hospital. If you ever have looked on the pre-op board, you'll often see that there are people there getting blood transfusions for a local oncologist. Um, and so you can arrange that as an outpatient, draw labs, it's an order sheet, they go into the, their local hospital. And so if you're in a, an area where you're covering multiple communities, you can actually work in multiple different hospitals to arrange for patients to get transfusion support without going through the ER. That's not anybody's goal is to say, just go to the ER and they'll give you blood. I think that would be a failure of the system. Perfect. And again, we'll, we'll touch on operationalization a little bit later too. You know, Dr. Morgans, before we go into a little bit more detail with the side effects, just at a big scope, you know, we talked about hematological side effects, you know, particularly anemia, maybe thrombocytopenias and lesser extent neutropenia. You know, there's been reports rarely of like myelodysplastic syndrome and bone marrow failure. Besides hematologic, any other side effects that are fairly common with PARP inhibitors? 
Thank you so much for bringing that up. Um, and yes, MDS is extremely rare and not something that we anticipate for the majority of our patients. So um, but one of the things that I think we should absolutely counsel our patients on is feeling nauseous, lack of appetite, really that anorexia that can come with taking any agent that we especially take by mouth um, that is an anti-neoplastic. So um, this is not um, different from what we see with the PARP inhibitors. And I have often had patients sort of titrate up their dose of their PARP inhibitor to try to ameliorate that. And if they do titrate up over say, say three to five to seven days, I, I've seen that that has been less of an issue with them. It's interesting as I've talked to people around the world and how they've had patients cope or not cope. Um, a lot of our other colleagues say that you know, these GI effects are pretty minimal in their populations. In my population, I've definitely seen it. So I would, I actually always recommend patients sort of titrate up two to three days on a lower dose, and then two to three days on a medium dose, and then two to three days until they get to their solid highest dose where they're, they're aiming to be, just because I'd rather have them come up gradually and, and tolerate that, that treatment over time rather than say, okay, I've taken three or four days and I will never take this medicine again because it really upset my stomach and I have no appetite and I really can't tolerate it. And, and that's been my experience, at least with our, our patients here in the US. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting. We're gonna, we're gonna, we might cover this a little bit more later too, but for the GI side effects, there's, they do tend to happen and actually over time on the doses resolve. So even if people start at the max dose and sort of power through with some other strategies, they do tend to resolve. So I, I like your strategy of titrating up. You know, I don't think everybody uses that. Some people just, you know, start off. Just to ask Dr. Morris, you know, um, what would you do a similar type thing, titrate up, or do you just start off and say you might get nauseous? We can use things like Zofran and we can parse out your meals. How do you do it? Uh, I think it's important to latch on to her point that nausea only really happens if you ask patients about it. And a lot of patients will hide that fact from you. Um, and I know there's a lot of oncology uh, colleagues who use proactively, here's your Zofran to go with your script. I want you to take this and it'll just, you'll tolerate it better. Um, I, th I think we handle it on a case-by-case -case basis. Um, some people will say, I have a, a weak stomach. Other people are say, I never have problems with that and I'd rather take less pills. Um, it's okay with some that have multiple doses where it's easier to titrate. Some of them as kind of a fixed dose or a combination tablet, it gets a little more challenging. So I think I tend to follow the label and start and warn them and tell them about a third of patients are gonna have nausea and we may have to adjust. Perfect. And now, you know, before we dive more into some of these, you know, hematological GI side effects and some of the nuances of managing them, you know, for a lot of the urologists, you know, for, I know for myself, you know, the, the, the vast majority of the treatments that I've been trained to give are surgical. And so sometimes thinking about how I handle a systemic treatment, a systemic toxicity can, you know, um, it's not as second nature as let's say like a medical oncologist or Dr. Morgan's. So, when you think about systemic therapy and treatment adverse events, like a thousand foot view, you know, how do you think in general terms when a toxicity is encountered about what are you going to do? We talked about monitoring. Now, how do you think about management? I think uh, understanding that there's no single dose that works for everyone is, is kind of paramount. Um, oncologists are used to dosing on body surface area and by all these fancy calculations. And we've never done that. You start somebody on their ditropan, it's at this dose. And we need to recognize that some people go lower and some people go higher, and that doesn't mean that we've done a poor job. So um, I think upfront, it's just really the recognition that we're gonna check with the patient every time they come in, ask the questions. Are you tolerating your food? Are you getting nauseated? Are you feeling weak? Are you getting short of breath when you go upstairs? And it's easy to come up with your list of like 10 questions you wanna ask. And, and most of the time it's no, 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 no. And you say, great. Um, but if they are having those issues, then you're ready to be kind of proactive I think what most urologists who started using PARP inhibitors early would tell you is that you, these side effects could get away from you if you were sweeping them under the rug and getting proactive with identifying them and then trying to ameliorate them really was a much better approach. And that's different than a lot of our toxicity that we're used to in urology, where we just, the answer is, oh, just stop the medicine and the dry mouth will go away. Um, it just is a little bit more proactive can really pay off 
And, and we don't do a lot of patient outreach like by our, our APPs aren't doing phone calls to all of our PAR patients like we may do with immunotherapy. Um, but I do think it's important on the, the provider when you have a touch point to basically ask about those things. Anemia will show up in a lab even without a question. But the other things you really have to kind of prod the patient or the caregiver who honestly is sometimes more honest about how they're doing than the patient is. You know, I think, um, you know, again, like when I thought about some of this for myself, you know, I totally agree with everything that you said. And I, I also think that sometimes it's important for me to like have like a structure to how I'm thinking just to make sure I keep organized. So like when a person has started a drug and they come in with like a sort of like a new side uh, toxicity where they call the office with a new issue, you know, like I start to think to myself, okay, first, is this an issue that I can handle outpatient or is an issue that I want to handle inpatient? I know that seems simplistic, but that's like the first thing I'm thinking about. And then I think, okay, they have this toxicity and say, I'm going to handle it, you know, outpatient. In terms of the drug they're taking, I have to think like, is this related to the drug in some way? GI, as we talked about, is there, is they have new fatigue related to like anemia, you know, what? And if it's related to the drug, am I thinking about, you know, reducing the dose, as Dr. Morgan said, she might start at a lower dose and ramp up to see this, you know, say I started up at the highest dose, should I be thinking about holding a dose, reducing a dose, and then when can I like restart, you know, um, that drug? And I think looking at the framework, even though it's really simple, but it often escapes me, is this inpatient or outpatient? Am I holding the dose or reducing the dose? And when am I gonna restart is important. And so, you know, on that, on that kind of end, and Dr. Morgan's, please expand on that if, if you want. But on that end, I'll take the anemia um, question, you know, kind of thing a little bit further. And I'll say, say you start the, the person has like mild anemia. They have like a hemoglobin of like, you know, like, you know, 10.5 or something. And you start the PARP inhibitor. They say that they have mild fatigue and the hemoglobin drops, let's say into the moderate an anemic range. Like a, a grade two anemia would be like eight to 10. So say it goes to like nine, you know, you know, what are you, what are you doing? I'm trying to deal with this so the audience would know. What are you doing? Are you going to hold the dose, keep treating through? You know, how are you going to manage that? And I'm going to do the same situation after that where the hemoglobin drops to like, let's say seven and a half after a month or two of treatment. Perfect. So I would start by saying for the majority of these, unless the hemoglobin drop is like three grams and please, please this is not like clear medical advice for any specific patient. <laughs> but most of these um, adverse events should be and can be managed as an outpatient. So I would always err, in my clinic, I err on the side of outpatient unless there's a clear sign that a patient is bleeding or losing blood at a rapid rate, because that means I need to bring them inpatient, figure out where they're bleeding and figure that out, but that is not drug related. Or, or just for the audience again, or if you saw that the side effect is compounding a separate comorbidity, like for example, Absolutely. yeah, symptom, yeah, exactly. Like cardiac issues compounded by a low hemoglobin, that anemia making their, you know, having them cardiac strain, you know, maybe an, a non-STEM, like that's not good. So obviously that patient needs to go into the hospital, but for most patients, when they drop their, their hemoglobin, if they're getting into the nine range as our first patient, or even into the, the eight, seven range as our next patient, these are things that we can monitor and manage as an outpatient, as long as other comorbidities are not compounded and the patient is not so dramatically symptomatic that that patient needs to go in for further workup and, and care. So how do we deal with this? Well, first we need to make sure that we believe that that hemoglobin drop is related to the drug. So I always think about, are there other causes of anemia that we need to be thinking about? Obviously we're giving someone a PARP inhibitor. This can cause bone marrow suppression. This can cause an anemia. Is the patient bleeding from any other place that we really need to deal with? Does the patient have an iron deficiency, B12 deficiency, folate deficiency, other deficiency that we need to deal with where supplementation would be really important to help support this hemoglobin for this patient. And we definitely think about that and try to supplement and, and diagnose where possible. Otherwise, um, if the patient has a hemoglobin over eight, usually we tend to pause drug if needed or dose reduce. But I 
tend to err on the side. This, so always you should refer to the package insert and think about what is actually written for these drugs. But in my practice, I tend to hold drug for brief periods of time so that I can allow that patient to recover and then restart drug, perhaps at a dose reduction, depending on how severe that adverse event was, and then monitor that patient closely. So if the patient had a you know, two gram hemoglobin drop from 10 to eight, and I say, wow, this patient is symptomatic, this is a large drop, I'm gonna hold drug for a little bit, make sure the patient does not have iron deficiency anemia and, or other causes of anemia or any signs of bleeding. And I will restart because that patient, when that patient gets to hemoglobin over nine to 10, and I might start a dose reduction in order to allow that patient to get to where they need to be, um, depending on how quickly they recover. But that is usually what I would do. If the patient was under eight, I would absolutely in my clinic at least, transfuse that patient, especially if they're symptomatic, anytime of under eight, eight or below, if they're symptomatic, or even eight and a half, and if they're symptomatic, they're gonna get transfusion. And again, the same sort of thought process, holding drug, making sure there's no other cause. Um, I think that we can, we can deal with most of these issues, again, outpatient, without having to admit the patient and sort of go through all of that but as a medical oncologist, I actually feel relatively comfortable with these kinds of outpatient manipulations. I would love to hear you, uh, Ash, and you, David, sort of how does that work when you don't necessarily have that experience with these low blood counts? Because we, we do this all the time with many of the agents that we, we use. Yeah, you know, I'll, I'll go to, to, to David, Dr. Morris, and ask him like kind of two things. One, I, I do think, I like what he said before, you have to reset your barometer. If you're, I actually think that as urologists, if we're going to do this, I, I would, I, I actually wouldn't do it. I'd have my medical oncologist do it. But if you have a dedicated advanced prostate cancer clinic that you are really dealing with systemic therapies all the time, I think their barometer is already sort of like reset. So like, so I think that that's a situation that's appropriate. But David, Maybe talk about, you know, how how you think about it if you kind of go out the same way. And also, you know, do you think about that? There's all these different regimens I mentioned: Olaparib alone, Olaparib plus Abby, you know, Nurapirib plus Abby, Talazaparib plus plus Enzalutamide. You know, are any of these agents sort of raise your antenna more than others? You know, Dr. Morgan's kind of hinted that maybe some of the combinations can be a little bit uh, harder, but. You know, so talk a little bit about how you should go about it. You might just reinforce what Dr. Morgan said. And also, is there any regimen that you might, you know, have a higher alert on or not? So um, I think uh, most urologists who've done this and work in advanced clinics within their own practices have tried to mirror the smart people. So we've paid attention to people like Dr. Morgan's or Dr. Hussein or the people who kind of led development of PARPs and kind of brought them to the trials for prostate cancer. And so we're just adapting, I mean, the way she described it is the way they wrote the package inserts, which is the way that most of our clinics basically said, we're going to do this. So I hold drug, I order transfusions. If they're symptomatic, they get a transfusion. If they're not symptomatic, but their number's really low, under eight, certainly under seven, uh, they're getting a transfusion. And if they're really low, sometimes I'm encouraging them to potentially be at the hospital um, because they may have other things or, or, or decompensate in a way that we're not able to manage as an outpatient. So. I think that's, that's the simple thing is if in doubt, always hold the drug. And if you're really in doubt about how sick somebody is, always send them to the hospital. But most of these, I would say 90% of the transfusions I've given in this situation, we've done as an outpatient. It's been rare to have to send somebody to the hospital. And, so. you know, before we talk about other regimens, because we've mentioned them a couple of times, you know, the, these package inserts, you know, quite frankly, I mean, Dr. Morgens has mentioned it a couple of times. The package inserts are excellent. Like, I think that like, you know, usually it's that folded piece of paper that comes with the pills and I throw them away, but they are actually extremely thoughtful package inserts and you can get things from it about, they can tell you things like for anemia, you might, you know, hold, dose, reduce. For thrombocytopenia, usually for all of them I've seen, it's like hold the dose so you have some recovery and then reduce. They might even go even further to kind of counsel you. I've seen some package inserts say, look, if you're getting, if you're not recovering to grade one anemia, for example, and you start to see other counts drop, it's rare, but Dr. Morgan's mentioned rare, but MDS can occur. And if you're seeing like a full bone marrow failure, you know, you might think about sending to a hematologist even. I, I'll ask Dr. Morgan's about her practice there because she, you know, she's hemonc, but 
but um, but for for David or I, I, I would say like if I saw all the counts dropping, I, I'd be like, oh, you know, let me hold dose and send to the hematologist. So as much as it's a little bit flip, I think if you're going to start this drug new, which a lot of urologists are going to be doing this class new, as opposed to the Medonks that have used it in breast, ovarian, you know, other cancers, the package inserts actually take a very little time to read, and they're pretty they're pretty darn good. That's what I think. For, for Alicia mentioning them before, I think there's some value to that. But uh, Alicia, two things. One, do you, do you agree, like, how do you think about referral to a hematologist? Is there any scenario where you would say, look, even though you are, you know, medical oncologist, so have hematology training, when do you refer those guys out? Yeah, so just to comment on the, the, the package insert, they're Googleable, and I Google them on a relatively uh, regular basis because I think they are really, really helpful. So when do I refer to him? So I am really, really lucky that I can get something called an e-consult. So sort of like a curbside through the, through the chart. If you have the ability to have a hematologist look at your patient's counts, um, that can be really helpful without having the patient actually go in. Obviously that's a luxury and not for the majority of people. Usually I would say if you hold drug and you do not see count recovery and improvement within say three, four weeks, um, or you see mild recovery, but still really low counts, then I would absolutely send to a hematologist. They are used to getting these kinds of referrals. They may say, this is a silly referral, but maybe one out of three, one out of four, they'll say, hey, I wanna do a bone marrow on this patient and just make sure that they're okay. You would be surprised at the number of patients who have underlying bone marrow disorders, thalassemia, other things that you didn't realize, the patient didn't realize. Maybe they have thalassemia and their MCV is 60 and you never really thought about it, never really looked at it. And, um, and the patients just you know, inherited that because that's what thalassemia is. And they didn't realize that's why they have an anemia. They've had it for their whole life. So if you're not used to sort of making those diagnoses and the counts are not recovering after a few weeks, hematologists are used to that and are ready for your referral. And that's when I would send them. Yeah, um, I'll go get David's thoughts too, but I would say absolutely. I mean, in my practice, I've always thought like, like someone has a blood clot and I thought like, oh, I don't want to bother my hematologist with this. Or someone has anemia that's not recovering. And it's like, you know, and say it's a macrocytic anemia, like that could be with the PARP. I'm like, oh, you know, I don't know. I can, I can handle this. Rheology is, the, the reality is that the, the hematologist loves this stuff. Usually it's they're dedicated to hematology. I'm not saying that PARP inhibitors cause blood clots, but they love your management of complicated thrombosis, simple thrombosis. And similarly, they would love to manage your macroscopic, your macrocytic anemia and figure out like, is this a, a B12 folate problem? I've never had any pushback except for my internal thought of like, you know, you know, I'm hesitant to refer for some reason. And, you know, David, I'll ask you like, you know, do you proactively get a partnership with a hematologist? You can say, look, I, you know, I want you to be my, my guy. Cause you're outside, you know, like Dr. Morgan said, she has the luxury of this e-consult. How do you do it? So um, for the community, it's, it's a slight distinction in that the anxiety of a urologist prescribing kind of these second level oncology drugs um, is how it's going to be received in the community. Um, and so it's not right in every practice that you're the one actually prescribing it, but it's very important that every urologist knows about the class and at least knows to look for the potential that these patients might exist. So it's nice to have a hematologist or an oncologist that does both that you work with closely, that is not going to judge you for appropriately managing the patient. And I think most of us can find that in their community. Um, and then it's just open communication. We have to get over the, the anxiety that I'm gonna be judged for doing this. And honestly, if the outreach to a hematologist, the response is why in the world are you writing that drug? You shouldn't be using that drug. Then you probably need to find a different hematologist. Um, it'd be like a urologist complaining to their primary care if I got sent a microhematuria patient. It's just not what we should be complaining about. So um, I, I think that in the real world, you may find difficult interactions, but usually you will find somebody who's very willing to say, I will look at that and it will be a simple answer for you, hopefully, and then you can move on with your cancer therapy. Yeah. And I think that like, you know, as I was saying too, the barrier 
for us as urologists is usually a perceived internal barrier as opposed to what, you know, what David said is whenever he's, he's reached out or as, as Alicia mentioned, whenever she's reached out, you know, they, they would love to help you, you know? So I'm sorry, I, I think you had something to say, Dr. Morgan, before going. Yeah, I was just gonna say, if anyone should have a barrier, it should be a medical oncologist who potentially could have board certified in hematology. And the guilt could not be greater, um, I think, in my world. But ultimately, what we want is the best for the patient. And if you can't provide it, it is okay to phone a friend. And that's actually why they're there. And I think I have yet to find a hematologist, thank goodness, who has said, you know, silly medical oncologist or silly urologist, don't refer to me. Like it's all about the patient. So we need to make sure that we focus on the patient and get the right answer for him um, because that's that's what matters the most. Yeah, and I think, you know, we're gonna get into it in a couple of minutes, but part of this is actually like who streamlines what in their practice. And that's why, you know, we're gonna talk about streamlining delivery of these medications by the urologist, by the medical oncologist, but in a similar way for the audience, just remember the hematologist has completely streamlined and operationalized how they deal with anemia for people on therapies and off therapies. And that's just a you know fast algorithm for them to plug through. So to recap, before I kind of ask a couple other questions, you know, anemia can be relatively common with PARP inhibitors. Your patients should be aware of it. A lot of them can respond to holding the dose and allowing recovery, maybe at a, re and then starting a reduced dose, or maybe even you can go back to full dose. Sometimes the hemoglobin will drop to a level where they're symptomatic or where it's, you know, below eight, which would be considered in the treatment trials. When you talk about grade three side effects in, in the trials, that's hemoglobin below eight for the trials. And in those cases, you may strongly consider a transfusion, which you can do within your own infusion center or have operationalized through you know, your hospitals. Sometimes I've had blood banks that are very, very well equipped to do that as well and form relationships. You know, we were talking a lot about dose reduction. You know, Dr. Morris, all these regimens that are out there, can all of them be, can all the PARPs be dose reduced or is it just some of them that can be dose, dose reduced? Uh, currently, with all the applications that we have and tablet and pill sizes, everything has the ability to be dose reduced. Um, I will say this is kind of like PDE5s for erection. The, the milligrams don't line up between the different drugs, so it can be a little confusing. And as Dr. Morgan's mentioned, it's not wrong to go to the PI and be like, hold on, is this a 100 milligram tablet or a 200 milligram tablet? Or is this a once a day or a twice a day? Um, it can get a little confusing, I'm, I'm not gonna to lie, and, and you want to be certain that you're using the correct starting dose and that you know what the dose reduction numbers are. Um, in my standpoint, 10,000 foot view, you just wanna be able to identify who is an appropriate candidate who needs a PARP inhibitor. The next step of choosing which flavor of PARP inhibitor you prefer is a very complicated decision. Um, and that's not really what we're here to focus on tonight. Um, and you mentioned the, you know, are some of them better or worse for side effects? And, and it's really hard to compare the trials because they're different patient populations. There are different lines of therapy with people enrolled who've had previous exposure to drugs. So you can't really say anemia is 20% with one drug and 40% with another drug. That, bug, that drug is twice as bad. Um, in reality, any, any person on any drug combination can have anemia that's symptomatic. So you have to treat them all as any of these are possible, but I will say the combination therapies, because you're hitting somebody often as a first line drug combination, that's a hard acting, very active AR drug and a very active PARP inhibitor. Those are the ones that I've seen the biggest problem with toxicity. So I think it's just the caution to know those are the ones to watch closely and you may need to dose reduce and that is not a failure. And most of the trials was about half the patients end up dose reducing or, or at least having a holiday. So um, I think you need to know setting yourself up and the patient up to know it's not a failure if we have to stop this drug or change to a different dose of this drug. Like oncologists do with chemotherapy, they don't just say you're getting this every three weeks for forever. They say we're planning to do it every three weeks and we check your labs every three weeks, but that doesn't mean we dose you every three weeks. So it's a, just a little mind shift for the patient. You know, Dr. Morgan, as you as you mentioned before, you know the other side effect that can happen with some of the PARP inhibitors is, um, you know, um, is like GI side effects. Uh, actually, before I even go into that, you know, for the, you know, um, I'll backtrack a second. You know, 
we're, you know, David was sort of getting at the idea that actually androgen receptor deprivation therapy and certainly androgen receptor inhibition can also lead to less, you know, hemoglobin. And actually a lot of our patients, even in the coming out of the hormone sensitive status into the metastatic CRPC status can develop a lot of mild anemias. And just so as a reminder to everybody, so say I have someone with a, you know, like a hemoglobin of like 10.5 starting out in metastatic CRPC, they haven't been on any of the PARP inhibitors, you know, is that, should that page, should that, should that hemoglobin disqualify them from getting on a PARP inhibitor in the clinical trials for PARP inhibitors? Did we exclude people who had hemoglobins of like 11 or what was the, what was my threshold? So great question. Usually hemoglobin threshold is around 10. Um, and every trial is going to vary a little bit around that, but that's typically what I think about, you know, as we think about PARPs or radiopharmaceuticals or any of them. Um, and I think, again, we in medical oncology are really used to transfusing. So when we think about clinical trial inclusion tri criteria, we, we might say, hey, hemoglobin 10, but you can't have been transfused in the last month. So this is something that you might think about as you're seeing your patients. If you have a patient on ADT alone and you have a hemoglobin less than 10, that's probably a patient that you want to even either think, is this something I did with my last treatment or do I need to send that patient to hematology? That patient might have a bone marrow overrun with cancer where you actually need to hit, not with a PARP necessarily, but perhaps with chemo or perhaps like with a PARP, but fast. So these are situations where you might have more aggressive disease than you thought, or maybe this is a patient, as I said before, with thalassemia who normally has a hemoglobin that's 11. And when you're nine and a half with ADT, this is really actually just thalassemia with ADT. So it's really important to look at the whole patient and try to figure out that timeline and that understanding. Most patients on ADT alone are not going to have a hemoglobin less than 10. And so most patients in this situation are gonna be able to start on their PARP and get things through. But if there's a patient who's lower, this is a question that you need to ask yourself and potentially ask a consultant, how do I support that patient? How do I work that patient up? What else could be going on here? Perfect. You know, I'm just going to go through a couple other of the of the toxicities that might emerge with PARP inhibitors. I think we've already covered them, but I'll have you both kind of weigh in. You know, the GI toxicities can happen. They're usually not life threatening. They're usually not that severe. They tend to happen also early and then resolve as you go on. Dr. Morgan's talked about a strategy of starting out at a lower dose, as Dr. Morris said. All the drugs and combinations are amenable to that. And actually, and I had not even thought about it in that approach. It's a nice way to see how's it affecting the bone marrow and allowing the person to tolerate, and then kind of like you know you can go up to it. You know, Dr. Dr. Morris, you'd mentioned like you know Zof Odasteron, you know Dansteron um, works in these scenarios. Um, maybe small meals. You know, um, you know if severe, you can do you know dose reduction. So like that's for the GI stuff. You know, also in the literature, Dr. Morris, they talk about fatigue with PARP inhibitors. And we all know fatigue happens with ADT and androgen receptor blockers. So I'll, I mean, I'll ask you, Dr. Uh, Dr. Morris, Dr. Uh, David, like how do you approach fatigue in your patients? How do you optimize them in regards to that with you know, combination therapies or single therapies? Um, so I think it's important to keep in mind, most urologists are comfortable with ADT fatigue and even AR inhibitor fatigue, where we know about that sort of fatigue. PARP inhibitor fatigue, it does appear to be slightly different than what we've seen with the AR and androgen receptor targeted therapies. Um, and it, whether it's more intense uh, because there's another line of therapy. So we shouldn't take it for granted, uh, but I do think that most of our idea of, oh, everybody's gonna be fatigued, you're on cancer therapy. Uh, we need to encourage and actually things like minimal exercise, whether it's walking, um, diet changes that are low fat or, you know, low carb Mediterranean style, not Western, unfortunately, Western diets that are bad for people. Um, any of those changes they can make have been shown to lower cancer fatigue in some of our smaller randomized trials. And so it's more of a support network, uh, prostate cancer foundation, AUA foundation. Um, they all have great American cancer society, all have great 
kind of ancillary things that are around education on fatigue and management and diet and exercise. And I, I think we do a poor job of pushing people to recognize that they need to empower themselves because the patient who goes home to just sit on the couch and gets fatigued, they're just going to get worse. Um, they really got to almost try to push to see if they can improve their fatigue by being active. It sounds counterintuitive, but the patients who are more active don't really complain that much about fatigue. It's the ones who are already kind of sedentary to begin with. Uh, perfect. And, you know, Dr. Morgan, is there anything to add for that? Yeah, I, I would, I, I don't think there's a whole lot to add. I, I just think, you know, to the point that physical activity is always something that we want to encourage and, you know, sedentary behavior, never ideal for any of our patients. So from a cardiovascular standpoint, whether you're treating with PARP inhibitors, ADT, chemotherapy, whatever it is, um, we want to encourage patients to be active um, in general. Yeah, and there and there are often programs. Either if you're hospital based, there's actually a lot of a lot of programs that are within your hospital, within your cancer center that can that can um, encourage these things. I know that in the past, when I've been community based or in in hospital based, there's been like things where they'll they'll get people moving, do yoga, do you know, do activities all together. And I think you know, um, when I was at Hopkins and now at Northwestern, these were easy to find. And I thought it'd be hard to find when I was in community centers. But in community practice, it's actually, you know, there's a lot of these wonderful organizations. I think, you know, that brings us to the last part about like, you know, operas, operationalizing these um, these inhibitors in your clinic. You know, I'll, I'll sort of, it kind of is intuitive of how a medical oncologist in an academic place would, would do it, Dr. Morgan. So I'm going to actually pick on David a little bit. You know, David, you talked a lot about how you would do it. But if you want to give, since we have a couple more minutes, like, some points of advice. Say, I, say I'm a urologist. I, I've read the literature. I know what I'm, what that is. I've read the package inserts. How do I, you know, hit the go button? What should I do before I start in my clinic for these PARP, for these PARP inhibitors? So uh, patient identification, number one, you've got to know your testing algorithms and to identify what is actually a pathologic variant to know who's even a candidate. Um, outside of that, once you're comfortable with the AE management, like we've gone over today, um, it's fairly comfortable as long as you've got a hematologist or medical oncologist in your community that's willing to help if there's a problem and you know a hospital transfusion center that you can use for support, um, then you're ready to go. It's really writing the prescription and then having your staff be aware of, you may get a phone call. And if you get a phone call two or three weeks later that uh, Billy's not keeping anything down and he's getting sick, it needs to either elevate to you or your APPs, nurse practitioners, PAs who are taking incoming calls need to be ready to manage it. And as long as, um, and I've run a large group, and so my patients are other partners, patients as well. And if they call that office and they recognize that they're on a PARP inhibitor that I'm managing, they route that question to me so that I'm ready to kind of answer it. And it's not up to my partner who's not writing for the PARP inhibitors who may not feel comfortable with it. So as long as you've kind of got communication uh, within your practices, and if it's a smaller group, you don't have to be the one to write it, but you have these patients in your clinic. And if you can help identify who they are with appropriate testing and then send them out to a medical oncologist who would love to take the patient and walk them through a PARP inhibitor journey, that's fine. It's just, we need to be able to identify the patients on the front end. And I think the, the key thing that you said there is, again, is like, you know, for us, general scope and the AUA audience, that's a lot of urologists, you know, these are life prolonging therapies and, you know, we, we, we will miss opportunities, particularly for the BRCA one and two, you know, altered patients and a lot of the other homologous combination pair altered patients. If we're not, you know, testing for them up front, even in the hormone sensitive setting, if the person already hadn't had their, you know, um, germline analysis, at least maybe even somatic so that they know, okay, if I, what's my plan B, what if I progress? Certainly once they progress, you want to really be on that that's our only, I think our only obligation is awareness to the patient and that testing. Then how you operationalize it is up to you. You know, I'll ask you, Dr. Morgans, you know, as you do it in your practice, how do you use some of the, you know, um, advanced providers, maybe the nurse practitioners or, or physician assistants, you know, do you use them to help? Like when you start the therapy, is the patient getting a phone call two days later? Or are they getting a check-in every week somehow? Or how do you do that? So I think with adequate counseling on the front end, we have not had to check in with them weekly or every other week. 
But I think Dr. Morris raised this point. You have to be ready if a patient's having a complication to say, come on into the clinic and get checked out. And that's where our advanced practice providers really come into play. I think, you know, we have to respond to the questions that they raise on their patient gateway or whatever interface we have or their phone calls. Um, and a lot of times nurses can actually handle most of those questions, but sometimes we need the patient to come in and get a blood count, get LFTs and, and really get assessed, potentially get some IV fluid, whatever it is. It may actually not be related to PARP. I mean, it could be related to some viral illness or GI illness that they just got from wherever they were in their daily lives because you know other things happen to people. But, um, but having those providers, APPs, whether they are nurse practitioners or PAs kind of step in and do those sort of more urgent evaluations, that can be, that can be critical. But I do, like I said, I, I do think with, with um, adequate pre-treatment um, counseling, we don't necessarily need to see the patient before a month, um, though sometimes we need to. And I would actually ask David, I mean, do you, do you find for many patients on PARP, you need to see them before a month or are they generally able to kind of get through as long as you sort of, this is how we do it step-by-step. Step. These are things to think about. Here's, you know, your strategies to get through. I'd say the vast majority can go a month. In fact, I think we ran into trouble at first because we treated them like AR agents where it was like, all right, you're great. Come back in two months. And at, by two months, you could see a really significant hemoglobin drop if you didn't check at a month. So um, I think we've, we've really kind of latched onto that. So now the, the two-week check is only for the people that are borderline to begin with or we're anxious about or they're really pre-treated and not very healthy. Almost everybody can go a month. Perfect. So, you know, in just 30 seconds for each, if there was like a, if you had to sum up a word of wisdom around this, you know, kind of discussion we had, I'll start with, with, with David. If you want to give like a sentence or two of words of wisdom, I, I think I'd love it. And the group would love it. Sure. I, I think it's mainly about identification, both identification of patients with testing and identification of side effects. It does not mean that you have to be the one writing the prescription or even the one managing all the side effects if you have a team built around you or you're, you've handed it off to a medical oncologist. You shouldn't feel bad about that, but we do need to identify patients. Great. And Dr. Morgans? So do the testing, germline and somatic. About half of our alterations are going to be identified in each of these testing types. And so in order to understand all of the patients we might treat, we have to do germline and somatic. And I, I would say at the end of the day, it's all about the patient. We want to get the best outcomes for these patients who we know actually have the poorest prognosis of our genetically identified patients at this point in time. So everything we can do to try to change that disease trajectory is is up to us. So we have to take those uh, those learnings and and do our best for these people. Wonderful. You know, I can't thank you enough. You know, Dr. Morris, David, and Dr. Morgan's uh, Alicia. You know, great conversation. I learned a lot. I think our audience learned a lot. And again, I can't thank the AUA enough. I can't thank the um, the folks that gave the grants to the AUA as Pfizer to like help sponsor these kind of educational activities, and certainly to our panelists, Dr. Morris and Dr. Morgans, thank you for spending your evening with us and for educating me and the rest of the uh, rest of the group that was in attendance.